Welcome, you're listening to Required Reading by Monash Tech School. We're here to help you understand what you're reading and why it matters. Today we're discussing Fahrenheit 451 by Ray Bradbury, and we're wondering in what forms does censorship take? My name is Lauren Bodica, joined by author-writer Catherine Brabin and Danika and Anthea from Brentwood Secondary College. I'll start off with a description of the book. It centers on a man called Montag, a fireman, who in this era burns down houses and books to protect the order of society as opposed to protecting people who might live inside of the house. Again, this is a novel set in the distant future. However, it feels not too dissimilar from today where technology continues to evolve and be inseparable from our lives. Simultaneously, war and global conflict looms. What power do we have over forces seemingly out of the average person average person's control. Obviously, you've got some high levels of censorship in certain countries, but there's always sort of ways around it through the internet and through that sort of even like the dark web type sort of situation, those sort of things. But it's difficult. It's increasingly difficult in places that are, I guess, for censorship. Something that the book really um, kind of hit home um, to me was that there needs to be a seed somewhere for change. Um, but then, I mean, without getting into like the end of the book already, but there needs to be some kind of catalyst as well. The book talks a lot about like, you know, buried knowledge of the true state of things in terms of how bad things are, but then some kind of like revolution or in the book war, like something kind of um, needs to happen. And it's like scary, I suppose, that we see a lot of um, a lot of countries where there isn't that the right ingredients there for something to happen as well as the the like cancel culture so how it sort of all started and all of the censorship it's because minority groups were feeling like they weren't like having voices heard and then everything got cancelled because i like well we can't please anyone so let's just cancel everything well we're both quite politically correct and we don't want to offend people or we as english teachers don't want to spread ideology that is hurtful or exclusionary fahrenheit is one of the texts that made me really think about the dangers of political correctness, how we we create the sort of standard that we accept and that can sort of in turn give government power as well. Um, We've got a character, Montag, and he's sort of weighing up all of these issues himself, everything that we're talking about at the moment, he seems to be kind of battling with. I guess he's struggling with, with understanding the purpose of his life. So he's just always been encouraged to believe Things have always been this way, so they shouldn't be any different. The catalyst of, of him understanding that this isn't how it should be was obviously um, Clarice. And she was like, we read into her as being like the manic pixie dream girl, that sort of <laughs> that sort of literature movement. She was like, well, it shouldn't always be this way. Maybe you should be enjoying the world around you. I think he just wants knowledge. There's a lot of biblical allusions in that text as well. Oh, my goodness. Confronting that idea that because things have always been done this way, it doesn't mean that they should. Because when we first get into the book, our first thoughts are with, are obviously Montag's thoughts. And he's saying it was a pleasure to burn. And then further on in the, down the line, he, there's the first sort of burning that we kind of experience where that woman lights the match and she kind of becomes a martyr herself for her cause. Um, but he finds himself taking a book, like Montag had nothing to do with this. His hand had done it all. It had a brain of its own, which I really liked because it was this idea that Montag was kind of two sides. He, he had these two sides to himself and he was battling with whether to maintain order or kind, kind of rebel and, and 
be curious about the world around him. And yeah, definitely. I think Clarice was like that drop in the water, you know, creating that rippling effect. It'd be good to have someone like Clarice in my life telling me to look into things a bit more. I think it's so true what you say about um, curiosity being that kind of thing that that kind of gets things going because at the start of the book you get this kind of horrifying sense of numbness or something. There's so much noise but nothing really being said and the thing that really kind of like haunted me but it was just when he said to his wife oh how did we meet again and she was like oh and they just like I think it's like it goes to a big kind of metaphor in the in the book about memory and the importance of learning from the past but just the fact that on like a day-to-day level they couldn't remember this like tiny fact about themselves because they're kind of so overwhelmed by just the the screens and the information around them all the time and they you get the sense that oh their brains have changed like they they it almost felt like oh that's when like you know I've got computer brain and I've been like looking at too many tabs and like I don't know just kind of can't hold information in my head it's like I was thinking how did he write this in the 50s and it was even before before like the the age of the smartphone and I just thought that's great dystopian fiction though when you kind of go oh my gosh that's like pretty close to to reality now I thought it was really well done. I spoke to Carsten Rudolph head of department for software systems and security at Monash University about protections against constant exposure to technology. I think we need to understand that some of these social media platforms have grown very fast and the information that we get is probably more than what was expected at the beginning. So we have created these dependencies where people kind of live in their social media information bubble and and they get kind of filtered information, filtered through the algorithms that these platforms have. I think the responsibility that comes from this is not clearly understood yet. As a society, we need to work on understanding how we suddenly depend on algorithms deciding what we get. I think one of the problems in that is that then maybe people are not actually aware that this is happening. So it's a bit like in the book, is it this woman who has that device in her ear, the seashell or something, uh, which kind of feeds her with information and that, and, and she's quite happy with that. There's no awareness that this is happening. Yeah, definitely. There's a, a lot of mindlessness and of inability to tap into I think what's implied as the natural world and wanting to develop yourself and understand yourself because that motif of fire throughout it obviously changes and then it becomes something that he can he can control and use I guess to his benefit I think he's just looking for a sense of of like participating in his life as well because there are all of these really overwhelming sort of noises coming through and it's really relevant to this information overload that's happening now yeah he's looking to sort of count and and participate and and be present and I think that's what Clarice shows him she's like have you ever thought why we have to drive so fast why are the speed limits so high so she's sort of I don't know she opens Pandora's box for him a little bit a part of his search for identity and because we get a couple of different visuals of him like he had that fixed smile on his face in the beginning when he was lighting that fire he had like this smile that kind of never went away and you got the idea from the language use that it wasn't a genuine smile it was just forced and then when he meets Clarice on that on that night the wind sort of just comes out of nowhere and she's this presence that comes out of nowhere and reflects himself back at him so he's like given this opportunity to really look at himself and come up with some original thought which is really interesting in this book because as you were saying, with the information overload from the technology, 
that and the four walls like that drove me nuts it's like we didn't we get these three walls like last month or last week and now you want a fourth wall and the way she calls them fam the family and she's like obsessed with that reality with the imagery and stuff and how he changes i'd say at the beginning and even him describing other firemen it's very mechanical but there's one point which describes the firemen as like having chiseled blue steel faces or something like that there's a part in the text and then when she comes in it's very much nature it's very much smells Milk. of like blossoms. Yeah. There's like natural light attributed to her. It's this whole, I guess, this whole quest for sort of change and, and I guess, yeah, being present and have, being more in sync with the world around you, not the artificial world that they've made you exist within. Montag had this anecdote of his mother and himself getting to know each other when he was a child around the candlelight because the electricity stopped working and he kind of compares... Clarice to this flickering light it's not this bright intense light that um just comes on and you can't escape it you can discuss things and and really get to know people around you it's like a moment in time where you can just think even the darkness the fact that there were moments of darkness that that shouldn't be feared like it's okay to sort of not know sort of what's happening in those early conversations with his with his mother Um, yeah that's a really good point actually because I think um I mean, that curiosity and that sense of observation, but that needs like silence, but also kind of a break from um, the light of a screen and, and things like that. So, I, yeah, I definitely feel like it's kind of for Montag, he wants something more, but he doesn't quite have the environment or even the, the words to articulate what it is. And I think um, it's so important. I mean, even to to the idea of art and the creation of a book is that that almost I say darkness, but I just mean that unknown, I guess, and just that silence of thinking time to generate things. Whereas I think in this world, like there's information, there's billboards, there's noise so often that there's never that little chink of time for someone to have their own thought and think that things could be different. Clarice has that beautiful aspect to her before she suddenly just disappears from the narrative. And I I thought, oh my gosh, I was kind of, I was horrified with how quick it moved in some ways. And I think that's a very clever narrative structure is that he throws things at you and the reader's quite almost shocked and bombarded by a lot of the the noise and the language when the short sentences and the sudden the suddenness of things happening. But I think the, the way he uses language mimics the world that he's showing. It's really well done in that way. Yeah, I was going to ask, was there anything that helped you sort of envision this world that you were reading? Definitely the language, and that's a really good example, those short, even one-word phrases where Montag still hasn't realised what's troubling him, but he can't stop thinking about Clarice and her family and her uncle. And it's like one, the uncle, two, Clarice. And it really reflects that manic state of your thoughts just being scrambled. I think Montag's internal world is depicted really well through, yeah, the sentence structure. Definitely what we said before as well with the imagery and the the real contrast between natural and artificial. Um, And then that symbolic reference to obviously his friend Faber. It's like a link to fable right, this idea of stories. And then how you go into Faber's workspace and it's completely like, chaos like there's things strewn all over the table like that imagery was really beautiful for me because it was so different to what existed within say um guy montag's house so the life he created with mildred and that was really powerful to sort of evoke um that idea that there's these completely oppositional worlds existing together due to you know the minds of others and how they're working and then montag starts to understand maybe favors a bit like him and so i thought that was a beautiful sort of symbolic representation of how 
the worlds are clashing so much. Yeah, I didn't even think of Faber me being Fable. Um, uh, I was also thinking of um, Faber and Faber, the publisher, big publishing house. So I, maybe I couldn't, I, I was making that connection, but um, that's really interesting. Yeah, I was also thinking of Faber, the pencil company that makes pencils. <laughs> they're probably um, all, they're probably all so relevant. They would have, yeah, all existed. Um, um, what we say to students, if you can back an interpretation and there are quotes in what you exactly, said, exactly. Wrong. And some students just love that. Well, not many. And others are like, there's no answer, help me. Because <laughs> if you ask the writer, they'll be like, yeah, sure, I meant that. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> I did actually watch an interview with Ray Bradbury and he did say that it was Faber, the pencil manufacturing company, but he did say that he didn't really realize these things until after he wrote the book. So I'm thinking, did that really inspire you? And it sounds like he wrote it. I was reading his like his preface and he wrote it in about nine days or something. So lucky to have that bout of inspiration, I think. Oh my gosh, I'll say. In terms of like creating a world, I think... The idea of light, again, really put this world together for me because when he meets Clarice and he's walking her to her house, all these lights are showing through the building um, and he's like, you know, what's going on? And he's not used to all of that light because everything's shrouded in darkness, like his own house has this artificial light going, but no one else is sort of sharing what's what's going on in their lives. It's not spilling out of the buildings. It's all very self-contained. So the other thing about the world interesting is is it's all very I get the sense that it's all very concrete, very square. All the houses are the same. And obviously when he has that moment where he's like, I need to get out of here, he actually chooses to use like a waterway to escape, which is really unstable. So symbolically, you know, unsure, it's dark, very opposite to what he is used to. So that whole clashing of like nature versus really hedonistic communist sort of society. And even water is kind of the the thing that can kill fire. Or the thing. Yeah, and, and water being a really powerful force. One big thing for me that I've just thought of in terms of the world and how that's constructed. The war, I don't think, is ever really explained. It's sort of just in the background and the jet bombs. Yeah, occasionally it's just really loud and it's not really until later that it's delved into a little bit more with everything being destroyed. But just that as a part of the setting creates a bit of unease. Yeah, I think you wrote it in the time of the Cold War. Um, You brought up, I think, sort of the communist kind of era and Catherine, you might have you might have a bit more insight into this. It reminded me of like neighbors reporting on neighbors, like friends reporting on friends. Um, when Montag decides to just suddenly start reading poems to his wife's friends, uh, one of them reports on him. And in the beginning, someone's reported on that woman who's the first sort of house burning that we witness. Yeah, yeah, I I found really strong parallels there. Just that idea that literature being seen as so powerful that it needs to be suppressed. So, you know, under communist Soviet Union, there was like a a writer's union. And if you were part of that union, you were published, you were kind of okay. And that was the line of writers who were, you know, sanctioned by the government and that was okay for them to publish. But then there is other whole group of dissident writers, I suppose, who their works were banned because maybe they, you know, portrayed, you know, religion or other 
other cultures, anything that might have been anti-communist or bourgeois, as they call it, and poets were killed and writers were killed or put in prison. Yeah, there was this super suspicion around your neighbour and your the people around you because you don't want to be the one that's reported on and you don't want to be the one that gets in trouble for having the wrong book or even just being thought of having the wrong book or thoughts or even saying the wrong joke and that sort of thing. That fear is so powerful, that suspicion and governments use that as a way of controlling people and the people are doing it for them. What about how McCarthyism era? Precisely that era where there was book burnings as well. I think that's probably where Bradbury is inspiration. It's these mindsets uh, that are so totalitarian. Like you were saying before, don't add complexity. When there's too much complexity, there's too much um, grounds for, you know, dissent. It's so much easier just to have one story. Very strong metaphors there. My kids really like that word to describe this whole sort of way of writing and the text itself is microcosm of wider America. They're like, what? because what does that mean? And then one of my kids, like, after telling them the meaning, on um, the kids were like, oh, so it's like a tiny universe. We've talked about like text being um, microcosms for obviously wider society, not sort of repeat um, what's happened. We've got bigger texts as well written in that time coming out of that McCarthy's sort of paranoia and the whole time where writers were being put on a list where they weren't allowed to share their texts anymore. Um, going to jail as well. Going to jail. And, Anyone and creative. Even too. some authors like dubbed on their author friends because I was like, well, I'm not communist. They are. Like- yeah, I think um, it's really good how Ray Bradbury in this book, he keeps bringing these moments in history into his own text. He had Beattie quoting a line that came out of the 1600s. Um, we shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England, as I trust shall never be put out. This was said um, from, I think Nicholas Ridley said it to his friend Hugh Latimer, and that was, they were getting burnt at the stake in Oxford for having Protestant beliefs and for supporting Lady Jane Grey, I think, as a successor to Edward. So he keeps bringing these moments in history where we light things on fire and forget history. He keeps bringing that to the forefront, which I really like. I, I loved that element of, of, I mean, I've just very been very interested myself with research and writing in this nature of like history versus kind of forgetting and what, you know, can we learn? And there's this kind of notion that, yeah, humans, you know, we, we just repeat the same mistakes. We don't learn anything kind of thing. But I think the sort of, alongside that there is that beautiful like sense of understanding that is hinted at even beady kind of quoting and quoting and we look to quotes and to words from others to kind of give us that language and I think Montag needed to find that sort of that language as well and I find it found it fascinating early on when he was reading and not really understanding what he was saying he was trying to read a book and he's like I can't get it I can't get it and I I think something beautiful comes from from literature there's this kind of understanding of like something deeper he touched on that sort of intangible thing that you can learn from from literature but also like practically what you can learn from from reading about the past with the references especially from baby there's just so many and I broke up students into groups and then each was looking at a particular theme and a couple of girls had ideas in literature which we sort of all agreed that that's the hardest one because it's not as it is pervasive and it's throughout the whole text what we sort of came up with was for them to look at all the references to other texts so intertextuality why is it there what's the story associated with it and they just found so many allegories, allusions. Yeah, biblical allusions. Yeah. He's super interesting. He's probably my favourite character, Beatty. And then and Beatty's complexity, 
I, I, I think he almost allows Montag to take him down. So he sort of smiles before, which is really interesting. And he, I, for me, he's, he's one of the most complex characters because I think he knows that he's, he's bound by this system. I think he wants to break it, but he doesn't have the tools to do that. So he's almost like encouraging like Montag to do it. <laughs> to end him blending in that sense like by this way of regrowth and I think there's a line after the after Beatty dies where Montag just kind of has this moment of oh he actually wanted that like something interesting for students to explore is like you know what when you're just a tool of this machine this system this society like how do you get out of it and for some people they feel like they can't does it make him you know conventionally bad sort of this anti-hero yeah I was Thinking when you were talking about the technology and we're talking about government as well, I was thinking, should we be more fearful of one over the other, technology or government, or should we just not be afraid of either of them? Because they're both seen as sort of weapons in this book or things to be afraid of. I'm equally afraid of both. <laughs> I think technology, I think we, as, as a lot of societies, just focus on the positives of technology and don't question it too much. But then I think governments can also weaponize technology and they do. I absolutely agree. I feel that there's the, the same questions that we have about technology and how useful it can be. They're kind of so similar, similar to governments. They can, you know, provide for people, they can help them, they can lift people up, or they can, you know, absolutely, you know, oppress certain people, they can um cover up information they can be weaponized it's that great symbolism in the book of that like light and dark and everything but then the big question above all of that is you know the how how do you make government be good government how do you make technology be used for for only good and this kind of novel shows kind of the extremity of it but also quite prophetic in a lot of ways in terms of like how how pervasive technology is in our lives now and how it can be really great like it can help a lot of marginalised voices. It can help with, you know, even protests. It can be can be used for good. But also, we know that even out of the pandemic recently, like the surveillance in some countries, the way they're able to track cases can be, you know, one on the one hand really useful, on the other hand, absolutely terrifying about what can be sanctioned as as okay. So yeah, again, so many so many parallels to the now. I think. Carsten further explained the relationship between government, social media, and technology. A lot of information about what we do on the internet is collected by companies and used for advertising, for creating uh, profiles about us. Governments usually would have access to that data so that that we do have laws that enable governments to get access to all different types of data. And we even have laws that enable governments, also our own in Australia, to, to force companies to build backdoors into their products that enables them to to get access to the data. It's not something that would be like routinely done for all products, at least not in our country. Um, usually you need a particular goal to do that. And also the way the, the internet works, and it is possible for a country to look at the traffic and really to detect who's talking to whom, which traffic is going from where to where. Um, on the other hand, we do have very strong cryptography that enables people to uh, protect their data. 
So we use that te technology, even governments would not be able to decrypt it. I think the hound was a bit terrifying for me. <laughs> Similarity to what we could be victim of now, which is like all of our data just being collected and used against us. And I thought, I wonder if there is actually a machine out there that is collecting scent that can track me down. Well, there is, there is actually a product um, that's from a company called uh, Boston Dynamics and the dog is called Spot. Carsten is talking about Spot from Boston Dynamics, a robot dog with 360 vision that can be custom controlled and developed, used within construction, healthcare, to even entertainment, like their use in the Black Mirror episode Metalhead. I think there's a version of that dog that can run up to 35 kilometers per hour. So it would be quite hard to outrun it. And it can open doors and, and all that. So it's quite capable. It doesn't kill people in that version and it doesn't track them. But uh, I guess adding sensors and weapons and things to that kind of dog would be possible. So I think, yes, it's actually feasible to do that. But we've already recorded like our, you know, um, biometric data to get, um, to get visas to go to certain places. So... What are blurring the lines between machine and animal? I feel like sometimes Mildred speaks like she could be a robot. She repeats herself and just the way she kind of never really says, it's almost like she's only got, you know, when you program something to only have a certain amount of responses. It's like a clip of lemmings. I was like, guys, these are, this is representative of Fahrenheit. There's like lemmings just like following each other blindly. Those scenes with her friends, they were some of my favourite moments in the text. They were really well done. Mildred, when she's talking to Montag, she's not even talking to anyone in particular or she doesn't think she is. It's just in one ear and she responds and then she shuts off. She's just paying attention to what's ever playing in her ear. The, the dialogue with Mildred is like, is so cleverly crafted in that way like it's quite unassuming it doesn't look like there's any, they're really saying much or there's a lot it's not very like complex but then you the interplay between those two you get the whole structure of that mindset it's quite it's quite terrifying and I wanted to know if you guys had any had any thoughts on the concept of privacy within this book well I guess what happens in your mind is the only place they can't get to and that becomes obviously really prominent throughout the text and toward the end. Every, everything they can see and hear, they can track. That's really similar to today's society. You could be having a conversation with a friend about a product or something, and then next minute it's like on your Instagram feed. That whole idea of that blurring lines of privacy, I don't think there's a lot of privacy apart from what you hold inside. Sort of like 1984, I think the biggest issue with privacy in the novel, the CCTV and then that becoming... A reality but I think as as predictive as a lot of sci-fi is and as this novel how relevant it is I think it's just gone if we're linking it back to today it's with what Annika was saying there's just a lot more probably wouldn't have seen coming in terms of even even apps like Facetune and there's all sorts of things you hear where it's like oh don't um do the ancestry test because then you don't know where your DNA is going I think, Gary, I think you've both been on that point of kind of where can you find privacy and the idea of it being kind of in the mind. I think that like the real strong example of that for me was when in order to kind of preserve the books that do exist, people were memorising them and it was kind of like the mind is the only safe place. And so, you know, in the at the end of the book, he realises this, um, you know, people who have memorised certain key texts and they're going to, when they finally get the chance, they're going to, you know, write out Shakespeare, Plato, that sort of thing. But also I did have a sense that I think it was with BT in particular that like he, BT seemed to know everything anyway. And even the sense that he seemed to know when there was like 
a book that he'd taken and kind of Beattie perhaps knew that Montag was wanting more and had that they had that sense of that they were both searching for something. In the home environment, you get the sense that it's like all pervasive. There's um, the screens everywhere. The door um, bell was like a voice, um, which was kind of kind of eerie as well. And you just get this sense of this, this like totality. The fact that like towards the end when like they're, they're sort of searching for Montag and there's kind of this like camera following around and it's broadcast to everybody. Everyone has to watch it. It reminded me of the Hunger Games, actually. The government were in everybody's private space through those screens. And that constant feeding of the seashells, that drew parallels. I don't know if you guys have ever read it, but there's a short story that I showed to my class as well. Um, Harrison Bergeron by Kurt Vonnegut. Everyone has to be equal. So anyone that's smart, like they hear like an alarm go off in their head, like every like 10 seconds. So they can't actually have any thoughts anymore. Oh my gosh, that's horrifying. Very short story. And, and Kurt Vonnegut's written a lot of really confronting stories that really deal with all these big ideas of censorship, government control, and that whole yeah nature versus technology. There's just the removal of thought through those seashells constantly feeding Mildred ideas. In that sense, the human mind becomes your only tool but then I guess when you consider the fragility of the human condition and how, you know, with, with memory or with things that could go wrong with your mind, like how's that going to withstand? They're like, oh, we're waiting. We're waiting to share the text. Like we're waiting for the right moment. Like when's that? You know, I don't know. I don't know how hopeful it was at the end. Like, <laughs> I really love that idea of, you know, when you read something or when you watch something, you know, it never really leaves you. You've got that information and you've got that knowledge. And it's, I really love that internal space being the sort of, it sounds a bit pessimistic as well, being the last sort of barricade against people trying to take things away from you kind of reminded me as well. And I think you mentioned it already, the cancel culture that's going on at the moment. Things like Gone with the Wind are being taken away from channels and summer heights high as well is gone as well from some networks if we take away everything like if we just cancel things and if we just abolish things how are we going to remember it generations ahead i think that's kind of scary as well yeah all, all, all learn from it it's like it's a very problematic it's a very gray area same with the, all the music that was um the whole michael jackson thing that happened like you know a few years ago like should we still listen to music when someone's done you know, something done things? Well, we won't listen to any music if we yeah. fully follow that <laughs> I think it's beautiful and endearing that the that the human mind can sort of withstand all that stuff. But then I think it's a bit terrifying when you consider yeah, the fragility of the human mind. We were also talking about the chase scene that Montag's like running, he's like running away into the wilderness to um to survive, I suppose. And I just thought that is really eerie. Like the media and television and broadcasting is like becoming this. It's like penetrating your privacy. It's just broadcasting your life and people are using that as entertainment. We're so used to that as like reality TV, aren't we? So, And then how they say that they've caught him and they just pick on this random... It's performative for the control, like enabling that control. But also when they kind of ask every single person to stand outside their door and then then someone will see him. I felt like that was such a strong metaphor for like, everyone this scene of like everyone just coming out in the middle of the night to stand on their doorstep and look out this kind of it's it was a really eerie like I've I've just seen it on like behind the news and stuff so I assume it's it's like legitimate but in Beijing right now they're under 100% surveillance and and neighbors are being rewarded um, with like a point system for telling on their neighbors for doing the wrong things yeah you can get kind of social credit points 
you know, if you don't have good credit, you can't um, book get certain um, rentals or go to certain schools or go to overseas yeah. flights or just say the way they're enforcing that is through surveillance. Um, yeah. And then also that surveillance in technology, but then the way you can actually grow that as a seed amongst people. And then you start that culture of suspicion and reporting. And then, yeah, suddenly we're back to Russia in the 30s. How can we protect ourselves from data hacking? We want to benefit from that technology. And so we, we buy new devices and, and new things. And very often we're not really aware that there are risks, not only of privacy, but if we have other devices that interact with the physical world, there's even risks to our health, self-driving cars, or, or even if it's simple things like having my, my heater controlled from over the internet and somebody could manipulate it. And I think we need to probably understand better how we can analyze these risks or how we can react to these risks. And I think, well, I usually show my, my students already in the first semester in that there are lots of cameras that are freely available to look at in the internet, living rooms, shops, or other places. And everybody can just, even without having to hack into anything just because they're not protected at all, you can just watch what people do. Someone could be watching this right now, not. perhaps. Uh, hopefully not. But, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I guess the first thing is uh, in the decisions to buy or install smart products and cameras and, and devices, that I think the first step should be to think about what could go wrong if somebody would get access or would get maliciously would get access to these devices. I'd always assume that it might happen uh, because the probability is relatively high that and as soon as you want to access these devices over the internet, they need to be accessible. So that means malicious actors could get access to them and then explore these vulnerabilities. Before buying these devices, stepping back and thinking about whether it's okay if somebody can listen into my common conversations through some smart speaker, or if it's okay for somebody, it's I guess it's fine. But if not, then you probably would think about uh, maybe there should be a proper switch to switch it off if I don't want to have somebody to to listen into my conversation. Yeah, and then there's uh, like functions in a smartphone. If you want to have a function that um, analyzes your speech in a way that you can have commands, that means that your speech at first needs to be recorded all the time so that that device can react to you and then detect it's something that it needs to react on or not. It doesn't mean it's stored somewhere, but at least the microphone needs to be activated all the time. So that kind of should make us thinking a bit whether that's a good idea or not. What was great about reading this book was the way that Ray Bradbury just built suspense as well. Like he just, it felt like such a sort of thrill to be reading this. Because as you look at the way that the structure changes throughout the novel, there are those really sort of short, sharp, a lot of visceral sort of imagery um, about the world around him at the sort of beginning of the text until he makes that change where he goes through the river and then he's in like the forest, like the wilderness. And there's real moments of quiet. I, I felt the whole first section of it was all very much rushed. And, and he's doing that on purpose to almost make you a bit claustrophobic of that world and that situation, especially when he's, you know, running away from the hound. But I think it's, it's really beautiful to see that change then at the sort of end of the text where it becomes these real moments of reflection. And What kind of got me a bit curious was the uh, use of the phoenix in the book as well, but the phoenix was like a symbol for the fireman. But I thought, isn't a phoenix like a positive symbol? So I was trying to make a sort of correlation between the phoenix and the fireman. I understand like sort of rebirth and coming out of the ashes again but I see that as a positive thing so it's interesting how this group of people have used the idea of the phoenix to represent something that's not 
positive. I think that's really interesting, like appropriation yeah, symbolism. And, and that subversion is sort of as well in the subversion of the role of a fireman. Normally they put fires out, but firemen in this book start fires, they burn things. People perhaps don't have the means to interpret symbolism and I guess literature is something that, you know, we we write symbols when we're writing books and kind of we read them and we interpret them. And it's sort of like this shared language of um, of literary um, literary language and, and technique is almost like this amazing thing that humans have created. It's almost like a language on a subconscious level. I think uh, another thing that I found interesting in terms of rewriting history was when they were saying, where did the firemen come from? And they said it came from Benjamin Franklin. And I'm thinking that's probably incorrect, but I just thought... It was interesting how history has been rewritten in the book. And no one can verify if they don't have a book. And it shows again, well, where do we learn? Like, where do we preserve history? I mean, I even feel like the internet is kind of, a, on the one hand, a great repository, but on the other hand, like a historian's nightmare. I really pity like doing PhDs in 20 years time, sift through data. That's their source material because it's just, we're going to have too much. And then because it was so problematic and no one knew like where the finding came from, doesn't that then point out the issues with the human mind and the problems of memory and how you can remember things incorrectly? And there's, there's plenty of people brought up in education systems that teach them facts, whether they're true or not, from a young enough age that they just have to be a certain type of person to investigate mm. whether there are other ideas. And that word came up so in our class, um, indoctrination. indoctrination. Of, of, of individuals and, and, and minds. Um, relating to what we're going through today and the book is those academics that he came across or the people who were exiled from the city were people that had, were like ethics professors and academics and people had lost interest in their fields because of government policy and popular opinion imposed by government. And it kind of reminded me of what was going on at the moment with humanities degrees being doubled in price and career um, degrees that apparently have certain career opportunities at the end of them are being lowered in price. Well, what do you think of that correlation? Yeah, that's an interesting parallel that you draw. To me, it feels like a like an attribution of value, like, well, what is valuable? And so I think for humanities, literature, because maybe you can't quantify it in the way we're, by the systems that we're so used to measuring things, for instance, you know, getting a job that pays X amount of money straight away sort of thing, or that people maybe can't see that there is value in learning how to read and interpret literature and appreciate art and um, all the things that, I don't know if I'm going to get cynical, but all the things that I'm sure these um these people consume as the people who are bringing these things in do consume movies at least, um, you know, not maybe being able to quantify that those things create curiosity, they create um, questioning people, they create thinkers, they create all the kinds of people that um, that Montag feels he might be but doesn't have the language. They, The humanities give people that kind of language to be able to express in, in this kind of dystopian world as well. It's gotten to the extreme of kind of, Oh, it's too complicated um, to have all these people who think so much and feel so much about books. Let's just kind of get rid of them. Yeah, critical and creative thinking just going out the window is not being important. And a lot of kids will come into English and be like, English is just too hard. There's no answer. And I was like, but that's the beauty of the subject. Exactly. Yeah. It's grey. And we yeah. love grey. When you when you when you sort of push all that away, push all that aside, what do you have? Uh, sort of Montag realizes in himself is that he he wants to be part of this quest for more. 
um, and that seeking of more. And that's inherently linked to the arts and humanities. Anthea and Annika, what do you want students to get out of this book when they're reading it? An ability to question. Don't don't stop questioning and exercising your ability for creative and critical thinking because it is it is I'd say it's integral and central to everything. Like understand this text is a microcosm for I guess current society as it stands and just question everything. No, I just have to say before I go, you two are amazing. Like I'm it makes me no thank you for having for having us all, Lauren. Yeah, well, thanks for coming on. Thanks, Lauren. Thanks, Catherine. It's been it's been excellent. Thanks for listening to Required Reading by Monash Tech School. Don't forget to tell us what you think of the book by sending us a message. Here's some food for thought. How does society use technology to promote freedom of thought and critical thinking? Are there any negatives to this? Tune in next time for the absolutely true diary of a part-time Indian.